A couple weeks ago, I sat down with Sergeant Staff Yassi Blooming. This was right before the holiday of Sukkot. It was on a Friday afternoon. He had just come home from his base, and he had a few moments to speak with us right before the advent of Shabbat. And he graciously and generously gave of his time. I thought at the time it would be interesting to hear from an Israeli soldier what is it like? He was on the paratroop brigade. He was leading. He does lead a, a, a group of, of, of several paratroopers underneath him. And he was actually an, an Ola. He made Aliyah to Israel from his home in the United States to serve in the army. I wanted to know what motivated him, what gave him the strength, what gave him the courage uh, in difficult situations to keep on going. What was the, the engine that kept pushing him? And I was extremely impressed with him. Now, of course, this was all, of course, before any of the war happened, before any of us had an inkling of the war that would be occurring just days later. I wanted to show, share with you this interview now to give you a little perspective of what's it like to be an Israeli soldier? What's it like behind the scenes? What's pushing them and motivating them, and how do they find the courage and the faith, the bitachon, the muna, to keep on going. I'm sure you'll get a perspective of the life of a soldier, a perspective of the maturity, the strength, and the absolute passion that he, from his amazing words, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the interview as much as I enjoyed recording it with him as we really know that we will win this war and it's through our faith in Hashem, faith in God, that we will prevail and that Am Yisrael will succeed. Okay, welcome everybody. This is Ordinary People with Extraordinary Stories. I'm your host, Hannah Weisberg, editor of The Jewish Woman. Um, today we have a special guest for you. We have Sergeant Staff Sergeant Yassi Blooming. Yassi, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to hear your story. So, Yessi, thank you. Yessi, you, what made you, I mean, you're a staff sergeant in the IDF. You grew up in in the United States. Your parents are Shluchim in Potomac, Maryland. What made you decide to join the IDF? Yeah, so um, above all, pleasure and honor to be here. And um, uh, I think it's a very... It's like the ultimate question, so to speak, the why of why you're there. And I think every soldier in the IDF, beyond the IDF, uh, anybody in an occupation so intense that really takes you over like the military uh, has to ask themselves every day, what is it that brought me here? What, are, what is the reason? What's the drive? What's the motivation? And even those who are in the army, because they have to be, because they have an Israeli law, you can be anywhere you want. You could go home every day in the army. You could be in combat. You could be in a higher or lower level unit. The why I think is critical. Um, I think for me, it comes back to um, really a little anecdote from the Rebbe when he was asked, what makes what makes his Hasidim? What makes somebody a follower of the Rebbe? What characterizes them? And the Rebbe said, well, my, my, my Hasidim are people who strive to get better every day. And the Rebbe would use the analogy of a ladder all the time, where comparing yourself or asking yourself, where am I in comparison to others, is not the, is not the measuring tool, not the yardstick. For what 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 can what what uh, constitutes your success as a chassid as a Jew is that if you're on a ladder and you're always each morning striving to get the next rung on your level, trying to improve that little bit, that's what makes you a chassid. That's what made the Rebbe. That's what the Rebbe's vision was for his followers. And I think being a soldier really characterizes that. That because of the things you deal with, the responsibility on your shoulders, um, the men at your right and on your left that you twenty four seven, you know, 
cry, bleed, sweat with, work with, sleep with, um, live every moment with just throughout all the difficult activities that you'll do. You have to keep that discipline, that, that total, that, you know, unmitigated dedication that this morning I'm going to get up going to make it better than the day before this operation. I'm going to keep it as best as I can. Each day is a gift. Each day is a precious opportunity. And I think even at a young age, I've been training for the army, preparing for it since a very young age, age about eight or nine. Were, were you always so disciplined? I mean, are, were you like such a disciplined person who, I mean, most people don't want so much discipline in their day that every right. moment, every, every move that they take is so, you know, so, so necessary and so crucial. Right. Yeah, I was definitely much, uh, very much a child uh, by all you know meanings of the word. You could ask my principal how many times I visited his office. It was, uh, I was a regular visitor. He'd prepare coffee and say welcome for your daily visit. But um, yeah, I still think you were able to connect with an idea that as a young child, seeing the idea of making the most of yourself every single day, every single moment, making that maximum wow. capacity, where like it says in Pierre Kavo that. Not, not, to, not on a grave note, but on, on a positive note that you should look at every day like it's your last one on earth, that I'm happy to celebrate this day, that it's been blessed, that before I go to sleep, I look back and I say, you know what? I gave my all. If tomorrow never comes, hopefully it will. Hashem will give us the gift of another day. We'll say Wadani in the morning. But if it doesn't come, I'm, so to speak, I'm satisfied. So to speak, I know that I, I put my foot on the gas and I didn't let up. I really made the most of myself. I think that's what the Rebbe had in mind for Sassidim. People who always strive to wow. continue to put the next foot down into that next rung. Um, I think at a young, even at a young age, I really identified with that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Rebbe did for children, Tzivas Hashem, the army of Hashem, where we're actually in an army. Did that speak to you in terms of making you want to join a real army? Yeah, I was a bit disappointed when I got to the IDF and I saw that I couldn't become a lieutenant colonel or whatever it was <laughs> that I got to in a matter of months in Tzivas Hashem. Um, but I think definitely, I think the Rebbe chose specific, I mean, he could have chose anything. He could have chosen that, you know, we're all students of the Rebbe, we're lamplighters of the world, and he could have made a lot of different themes. He chose Tzivus Hashem, a military structure, a Jewish military structure, because because of the beauty of a soldier who's willing to do and pay any price for his mission. And it could be the sake for some government of some foreign military, it could be for whatever it is, but the idea of a soldier who's willing to have that total bittle, that self-nullification, that's discussed in Hasidic works at, you know, extremely broad length. That's what characterizes what a chassid is. Somebody who's willing to lay himself down and say, this is the mission. These are the values that I believe in. And I'm willing to pay the price, any price. But these are the other things I'm willing to do to, in order to uh, stay faithful to them. Well, I mean, it sounds like you really don't only speak the speech. You know, you, you actually walk the talk because uh, you were recently awarded a, a uh, an award for being outstanding soldiers in the who excel in the paratroop brigade by the IDF, and this award isn't only just for people who have outstanding service in in terms of their missions, but it's also for those who have a positive relationship in the IDF. Can you tell us a little about this award that you were recently given? Yeah, sure. So the IDF is split up into um, at the brigade level, meaning the brigade is essentially the largest group you'll work with. Uh, as an organization, and a brigade is composed of about uh, six to 10,000 soldiers, depending on the uh, manpower needed for it. Um, I'm in the paratroopers brigade, which I can't expand upon the exact number, but uh, definitely a few thousand soldiers there. And they want to honor each year those, like you said, who take the balanced approach of not just making sure their weapon is clean and ready to go. My weapon is here. It's clean. It's ready to go. That's not what the main uh, decision maker is, what makes a good soldier. It's that when he comes through the morning and there's a chef, that's his profession in the army, made him an egg and made him some potatoes and made him his breakfast and he invested in himself in it. You recognize that and you stop for a moment 
ask how he's doing and you wish him a good day and you thank him for his work. And that means also on the way out when you've just caught, just like we did this week, over 30 illegal smugglers into the West Bank, smuggling weapons, all kinds of different things that shouldn't be in the land of Israel that are there to harm uh, Jews. Uh, you still treat them with the human dignity and respect that every human being created in the image of God deserves. Uh, you give them the full, wow. uh, you know, the full uh, wrath of the law, so to speak, but you give them the food and the water and the basic respect that every human being deserves. And it means I think, I think the award is, is, is there to, to recognize those who are willing to go above and beyond and say, I'm a rifleman or I'm a artillery man. So all I should focus in is my artillery or my rifle or my, you know, my marksmanship or my cleanliness of my uniform and my army discipline. It's about looking beyond that and saying, I'm there to be a mensch. Hmm. I'm a mensch is somebody who's well around wow. and says, I'm also good to my neighbors. I'm also good people who are not part of my unit, who I have nothing to do with. I'm also willing to do favors for them. And uh, not to say that I myself am able to, to get to that uh, level, but the army definitely has recognized the people who I was with. And I guess for some reason, myself as well, that they have that balance, wow. that balance of being able to excel and uh, not just your own little uh, square. Beautiful. Wow. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful lesson for all of us. What I'm sure many of our viewers are wondering, I mean, you're, you're wearing a full beard, like a Chabad Chassid. You're obviously religious. What's it like being a Chabad Chassid in the IDF? Uh, it's a challenge. Um, it definitely adds a unique aspect to my service. I have to think about the fact that especially just as a religious Jew, beyond being Chabad, which really takes uh, it really takes Jewish, you know, observance to a heart level, meaning you don't just click a box that I put on the tefillin or I did this. It's that you put on tefillin that are Chabad tefillin, which are more beautiful and they're larger. And you put on two pairs of tefillin and everything you do is with an extra added, uh, a little twist of beauty, a little twist of more investment, a little more to connect to it. Uh, so beyond those levels, even just as a religious Jew, it's definitely not a challenge because you're working, doing the same job as your comrades are on your left and right. Uh, but you're just, uh, you've just added difficulty because you're doing it sitis, you're doing it uh, with a beard, which you can take my word for it, wearing a helmet strap on your beard is, is far <laughs> from fun, uh, especially right. three days in a row on an operation. When you have a yarmulke on, when wow. you've got to stop and daven three times a day, you've got to get up on time. If you've been in an operation all night and you went to sleep at you know 4 a.m. to get up before 9, 20 a.m. in order to say Shema on time, it's a lot of different added uh, difficulty. And um, sure. yeah, that's why the question you ultimately come to, no matter which hashkafa, meaning which background you come from in the religious spectrum, if you want to keep this stuff and you want to put on the tefillin and put on the tzitzit and, and do those commandments, the question everybody ultimately comes to is, well, how much do I really believe in it? How much am I really willing to sacrifice to keep to these laws and keep to these statutes? Because if I don't believe in it and it isn't, and I'm not willing to sacrifice for it, then it'll only drag me down. It'll only take away from my comfort, only take away from the time that I have to eat or sleep or the ability I have to kind of, you know, live my life as I please because the army is constrictive enough as it is. Um, so it's definitely an added. Uh, have you felt that it dragged you down in any way or the opposite? So, so you get to that junction. You get to that junction where I'll never forget the first time I finished basic training, which is eight months long. And we did a battalion wide training exercise. I'd only trained at the level of the platoon, which is about 30 guys. Now you're suddenly training with the entire battalion, which is 400, 500 soldiers. You're marching with tanks, with airplanes flying overhead. You, you know, jump out, you take out a, jump out of helicopters, out of planes, you come in by ship. It's like a full war exercise. And the first time I tasted and experienced it, it's something at that level. And so we did an all night march, about 30 kilometers to get to a certain uh, simulated uh, enemy wow. position. 
And the idea was that we're going to camp out at that enemy position for about an hour and a half, and then we're going to attack it uh, in theory uh, using simulated rounds and obviously nothing, um, nothing actually uh, dangerous. So we get there, we have an hour and a half break, and it's right crack of sunrise. And uh, I have that junction that I'm meeting for the first time in the army of, I really have to choose now. Should I put on the tefillin and sit there and dive in with two pairs of tefillin and a talis and the whole balagan, the whole chaos and the whole package that comes with that? Uh, or can I be like everybody else, you know, just take off my gear, get some sleep. We had to sleep in about two days uh, and just, you know, walk the whole bunch. If you're davening means you got to stand up, you got to bow, you got to sit, you got to stand, you got to, you got to move around, you got to do all kinds of different things. You can't eat. Uh, those are sacrifices you have to make. And I just never will forget that first moment where that's it. We were opened up the watches, you know, an hour and a half, we'll be ready to go. I've got this hour and a half. How, how would I like to spend it? What is the price I'm willing to pay for those values that I believe in to be a religious Jew, to put on the tefillin? It, it, it is it important to me? And uh, yeah, the Rebbe, what the Rebbe was all about, I mean, he sent shluchim, his emissaries all across the globe to people who face difficulties like that every day, where putting on a yarmulke in public uh, can be reason enough for somebody to spit at you as they drive their car by or, or hurl a couple insults. So I'm sure many of us have experienced firsthand. I've experienced it obviously as well in Israel and different enemy territories. Um, it, it, and, and the Rebbe said that if, if you really believe and you really connect and you really connect to the essence of Yiddishkeit and you see the beauty of it, and there's no question, it's not even like it's a, it's a matter of compromise. It's a matter of discussion. There's no question about it. I'm a Jew. I'm a religious Jew. Uh, and then above that, and on top of that, I'm an American, I'm an Israeli, I'm a soldier, I'm a commander. The basis is never going to change. The basis is, is what it is. I'm a Jew, I'm a Yid, and uh, I'm a chassid. And that means that if something, if something is going to come off, it'll be the helmet, not the beard. If something is going to get wow. taken off the schedule, it'll be the food and the sleep, not the tefillin, because that's what I am. If I take that away, then what am I? And what's left? So uh, that's really the, the Rebbe's, um, I think, vision that's for incredible. his across the globe. Yeah. That's that's pretty incredible. I mean, that's also showing like I, I guess Judaism becomes even more real in such situations because because it's a sacrifice, because you've sacrificed for it, because you've given that hour of your time that you can just rest or do whatever you want, and you've done instead you've you've prayed during that time. That's sure. That's quite incredible. Sure. Yeah, it gives you an opportunity how, how to do... put a spotlight on those things that you do on a daily basis to really focus in on. Why are you doing them? Because right now, if you're going to do it, you're Why going to have to pay it? the heavy price. Right. hundred percent. And it makes it so much more meaningful that this is really what's important to you. That's incredible. Um, how, do, how are you looked at? Like, how do people look at you in the IDF as this religious Chabad soldier? Um, well, definitely, I am fully religious Chabad. I walk around with a full black frock on Shabbat. I've got my rifle on my side and my beret. It's just flowing at the side. It's definitely a unique sight to see in a secular society and a military that just combines all the different aspects of Israel and all the different people and all kinds of different religious um, uh, levels of observance. Um, there's definitely been times when it's been doubted. My ability to operate at all fronts, my ability to be able to manage my job and stay professional and do what I'm supposed to do instead of just, you know, backing out and saying, oh, I'm a yeshiva bacher, oh, I'm religious, so I'm a Chabad guy, I have no place being here. My first time I met a military environment was at the enlistment office. I came there in civilian clothes, ready to enlist, and the first thing I got at the door, the first uh, reception I got, so to speak, was, oh, the, um, refu the enlistment refusal is the other way down the hall. 
Meaning they thought I'm a, I'm a religious <laughs> no. guy coming in. Right. Definitely I'm coming in to bring in the forms and say I'm not serving at all and I want to stay in my neighborhood and I don't want to come. I have nothing to do with this. And I remember in my broken right. Hebrew, the very beginning of my service, you know, communicating to them and saying, you know, I, I'm, he- I'm here to be a combat soldier and do the full three years. And I'm here, I made Aliyah and I'm here to give of myself. And wow. it was definitely, I think, a paradigm shift in the eyes of a lot of people who I'm grew sure. up in their own bubbles, in their own cities where they never even come across a, you know, a religious Jew, a Chabad, Shliach. And uh, to see wow. that you're able to combine those worlds without compromising any of them. I think is refreshing to a lot of people. I hope it's refreshing and I hope it definitely breaks that glass ceiling. I know it's a cliche in today's day and age to say glass ceiling, but I think it definitely, in a lot of I'm people's sure. minds, is something that's not possible. And to see it happen, I think is uh, sure. refreshing to many. I'm sure. Have you been able to do any shlichus, any uh, outreach work in your position there in the in the army? Have you been able to introduce other soldiers to mitzvot like a Chabad shliach would do? Or is it difficult in the army to do that? Yeah, I think the opposite. I think being in the army has opened up such a broad amount of shlichut and of um, of reaching reaching Jews in need and helping bring them even more close to Yiddishkeit and, and uh, Judaism than ever before. And I think that I would be able to do if I was stationed in, you know, a college campus or in a state or a country somewhere mm-hmm. because the military. Do you have any examples? Allowed... Sure, sure. So, yeah, the army, what it does is it puts you in an environment with other people that you can connect to them personally. And therefore, when I come and ask a guy for tefillin, he knows that it comes to a place from my heart. And I, when I ask my commander and I say, you know, today is, uh, what was it last year? It was, uh, it was Pesach. Today is Pesach. And we're doing a special exercise that we're going to protect the base in case it's attacked by some uh, threat that was on the radar that was supposed to happen. It didn't in the end. Uh, we said, we have to do a Pesach Seder. And he said, Pesach Seder. And where are we going to get the supplies from? And you really have that that idea before you, am I going to take the charge of this shlichut? Am I going to take on this mission? Or am I going to say it's not for me that, you know, there's going to be some rabbi who's going to come. Maybe we'll get in charge with the local Chabad you know, municipality that can bring over some atzot. I said in the week before Pesach, we're going to make this happen. And so we spoke to the commanders. I spoke to the officers ahead of me. And that was my shlichut for that Pesach, that I was in the desert and I was on full combat gear. But we sat and we made a Pesach Seder. We brought in non-alcoholic wine, of course, uh, grape juice for the Pesach Seder with the matzot. And, and the looks in people's faces of just the shock of, wow, I'm here on an army base in the middle of the desert. I thought I was just going to be down in the dumps. I thought it was just going to be a, you know, a gloomy holiday that was just going to pass. And you wouldn't even pay attention that it was the holiday because the army routine never stops. Uh, and it was just looks of joy on their faces, the looks of surprise of, wow, we're enjoying a Pesach Seder here. I was another time during a war exercise where a soldier lost his fill-in because we were doing a... Uh, complicated maneuver from a plane to a building and then from the building to the ground and somewhere in the process it fell out and i just saw that he was troubled i saw that there's something that was making him anguish towards sunset and just speaking to him and saying you know what's going on i, I started giving him like uh, operational support you know how the operation is going to be okay and nothing to worry about and you know i'll help you out with your gear if you want and he said no it's something else and i said what was it he said i lost my tefillin so you should have told me and so i remember i i got us to stop I told the commander we were stopping just to check on the gear and make sure everything's okay. I quickly took out some tefillin and put it on him. Uh, just those, those looks on the faces of Jews who never in their mind would think, I'm in the army. There's looking more outside. The emissaries are outside. In Bangladesh, if I'm, if I'm taking a tour in India, if I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, my father with a Chabad Shul community that he raises so beautifully with my, with my mother. In the army itself, you can find that light in the darkness that I'm in the desert. Who's going to bring me a Pesach Seder? There's no Chabad rabbi here. 
That's your job. That's your job. It's every Jew's job, not a guy with a beard or with tits necessarily. Every Jew's job to look towards the right and left and see those Jews that we're able to reach, not in an official setting where I'm a Chabad rabbi and I'm ordained in this and this position. Everybody's a shpiach. Everybody's an emissary. And all wow. it takes is reaching out to the guy on your right and left and saying, here's some filling, here's some Shabbat candles. I gave Shabbat candles recently to some female um, artillery women and uh, being able to spread that light a little bit more, no matter where you are, even in the army. Beautiful. That's, that's, that's so beautiful. Um, I understand that you're married. What does your wife think about your, the work that you do in the army? Well, uh, I think I'll start off by saying I come home uh, in certain intense operational periods twice a month, sometimes just for two weekends in a month. Uh, many, you know, Shabbatot and uh, holidays that she's done alone or with family or sure friends. That's very hard. And sure. uh, yeah, people ask me, what was your, what's your biggest uh, challenge of your service? And uh, mm -hmm. we did a winter training as a machine gun. They said, that must have been your hardest thing you ever did in your service. And I said, yeah, that was the second hardest thing I've ever done in my service, that winter training. <laughs> I said, oh, so it was the number one training. And I say, every time I have to leave my home and leave my wife behind to go back I'm to base sure. and go back to that uh, routine. Uh, my husband is supposed to be with his wife. That's the nature of the role. That's especially uh, the way of a young couple in their first year of marriage. Um, but uh, I think she's, she's very proud, proud to be a part, proud to be a partner proud to be a supporter of the work that I do. And I think it gives her tremendous joy that I'm, thank God, with WhatsApp and communication and technology, or just in the news media, to hear about all the different work that the IDF does. And an IDF soldier, like the, the Talmud says, a Jew is, an, is its own world. An IDF soldier is an ambassador of light and hope and peace wherever he goes. And we do tremendous, tremendous work at making that happen. I think it gives her great gratification. And despite the distance, you know, I'm always there. We're always there connected in our hearts. And despite the distance and despite the pain, and despite the difficulty, and despite the longing, the work we do is, is, is worth keeping our head up and smiling another day and saying, we'll keep going forward, keep counting down the days till I come home next. I'm home right now, which is great for the weekend. And um, mm. yeah, Baruch Hashem, I, I, I really, without her, I wouldn't be able to do anything in the army. Without her, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be anywhere, uh, anywhere near as capable of keeping, keeping to drive forward. She's really the fuel that keeps me going. And uh, she's the real hero in the story. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. And you are a hero. You're a hero for all of us, for all the Jewish people everywhere that they are, you and all the members of the IDF, um, the, the sacrifice that you do and the work that you do is unbelievable. Um, can you tell us a little bit about a typical day, uh, as a commander? Well, what made you a commander? What makes you a commander? How did you become a commander and what does your day look like? Is there a sure. typical day? Probably not. Well, a typical day in the army is an absolute oxymoron. <laughs> right. They never, yeah, right. never, like they say, never a boring moment. Uh, never right. a fun sure. moment either. No fun to be had, right. but definitely not a boring. Um, right. Being a commander is a, is a process from the very first day you enlist of analytics, 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 analytics of people looking at you and saying, is this somebody as an officer, as a commander, you know, a recruit that just walks into the base for his very first day in the army straight from home. Is this somebody I would trust leading men into battle? And so being a commander is a lot more than a, a technical certification. It's a lot more than just a, a pin on your chest that you completed the course, more than just ranks on your shoulder. It's about, is this somebody that a mother would look to her son going back to base in the morning and say, oh, he's in good, he's, he's in good hands. You know, this is my son. This is my daughter. This is my husband or wife, you know, whatever it means, whatever this person means, he's a, he's a whole world. He's a whole, he's a whole world to so many people. Will this commander remember sure. that? 
most commander remember. I think that's what being, I think ultimately beyond, you know, there's eight months of basic training, there's four months of commander's course, you got to do another four months of the guide of training. There's a whole pipeline takes about a year. Me, it took about a year and four months to be a commander because they let me out for the commander's course late. Um, but beyond the technical process of becoming a commander, I think it's a lot of uh, decision within yourself that I'm no longer going to be living for my own little square and I've got my rifle, I've got my uniform, I've got my helmet and my vest, and that's my that's my role. That's what I have to take care of. It's that you're willing to go beyond that and say, I've got 18 young men under my ultimate mm-hmm. command where I can sentence them to almost certain death. And I can I can lead them on missions that are counterintuitive to human nature. I can jump out of planes with them at 1,200 feet. I can go into you know arrests under fire coming to arrest some, t- some wanted uh, fugitive who ran from our earlier. These are people that you really have to be able to respect and love and care for. Because if you're not, and you're not willing to make that transfer in your head that I'm right now living and I'm, and I'm, I'm leading above myself for more than myself, then uh, you'll, your men will never, you'll never lead your men. You'll always be dragging them along. And I think that's what everybody mm-hmm. being a commander is all about to me. And that's what the typical day is like as a, as a commander. Typical day is getting up in the morning, Waking up my men and being them, being them, being there for them in any way that I can. Never forgetting that these are their mother's sons. These are precious young men, Jews with a whole life ahead of them. And so, even if we are, for example, this week we caught, like I said earlier, like a lot of smugglers coming across the border. There's been a recent issue with uh, the border security. If it's catching those, you know, people smuggling weapons and uh, explosives through the border, if it's doing a training exercise, if it's doing a education and sharing week. Uh, and going to local schools and local, you know, councils and organizations and speaking about how the military can help make a better social impact. If it's speaking about how to keep the peace within the military, within the different sections, if it's speaking about and attending a funeral or a, uh, a hospital of another friend who is uh, injured in whatever setting it, it, it may be, uh, in all of those settings, as a commander, you're responsible for your men. As a commander, you're responsible for their well-being, for taking care of them. And uh, that's really the old, that's my, that's my mission, whatever the technical details are, they change every day. There's really no, you know, consistency in what it is. We fight, we do what we have to do, but keeping them at the forefront and saying, these are my men, they're my bottom line, they're my whole world. I think it's really the, uh, it's the torch that guides me in my uh, uh, position. It, it seems to be a theme that runs through your life, you know, through this menschlichkeit, this this love for others, this responsibility for others, this this care about others, this seeing others as a human being and a child of a mother, as you say, or a father, and really seeing them as a world. So, you know, you 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 could feel it when you're saying it. You could feel why you're the commander, what that means to you. It it, it comes through very clearly. Well, give it's the credit beautiful. where it's due. It's not my words. It's the Rebbe's. How uh, every every Jew has, this is something I'll never forget in yeshiva, uh, before I joined the military, and I learned in uh, the Sifta, like uh, an age of 15, 16, these yeshivas, where I heard such a powerful story about the Rebbe's perspective on how every single Jew is a brother and a sister, but not separate, we're all the same. Meaning that he said that the closer you look within yourself, within yourself, the deeper you look within yourself, which means you'd seemingly be more further apart, the more together you are with your fellow brothers and sisters, fellow Jews, because every Jew has the same ultimate soul, a part, a real piece of God, as it's written in the Tanya, a real slice of godliness within. That's your soul. That's who you are. And so beyond the uniform that you wear or the rank on your shoulder or anything that makes up your, you know, uh, what you struggle with and what your strength, what your strengths are and what your uh, things that you have to improve on are, 
if you go deeper and you take off all those layers, you realize we're all just the same precious sons and daughters of God. And uh, that's mm -hmm. something that bleeds into anything. Forget the army. It can bleed into your family and your relationship. It's something that should really take on a form of just looking and saying beyond all the different machlokets, beyond all the different uh, division and argumentation. And I agree and you don't agree and I understand and you don't. And I experienced and he did and he didn't. We're all Jews. We're all really the same precious sons and daughters of the same nation. And um, especially in the military, it's something that it's, I strive to keep in mind every day. Beautiful. That's that's a beautiful outlook. Really, really outstanding. Um, what about fears, challenges? You know, I'm sure in the army you're facing fear on a regular basis. How do you deal with that? Good question. The fear is definitely something that's prominent in a daily life as a in the military, especially as a commander, where you no longer sure. can just disappear in the crowd. You lead from the front. Um, that's mm -hmm. definitely the Jewish philosophy as well. In our military, we put our commanders lead from the front and don't just bark orders from an office somewhere. Um, I think my, my, my central view on fear and uh, also uncertainty, all the different worries that may pop up into your head, the different voices that try and get into you when you're preparing for an arrest and filling up the last bullets in your magazine ready to go. Uh, I think that the, the approach I take is default aggressive, meaning I'm the one who's setting the stage here. I'm the one who's going to take hold of the emotional environment here. I'm the one who's going to take hold of what the feelings are and what the approach is and what the viewpoint is. The Rebbe was asked, well, how do your emissaries in the middle of, you know, faraway land, the middle of China and, you know, Middle East and way back to the United States, Western world, up and down, wherever you look on the globe, there's a Chabad emissary, Baruch Hashem, may they only multiply. Um, how do you raise a family in an environment like that and not be influenced? How do you raise your kids and you want them to be religious and then they go to a school and they hear about all kinds of different topics that are far from Judaism and are secular and even damaging uh, to the Jewish perspective. And the Rebbe answered very simply that if you have a syringe, this is all something that he said when he was in a doctor's, uh, uh, said, reported to the doctor himself, that when you have a syringe and you push outwards with the syringe and you expel the uh, contents inside, you can't intake with the syringe. It's only one or the other. If you're pushing out with the syringe, the vacuum energy will just expel everything outside. You can't put anything in. And that's exactly what it's like if you're a shliach and you have that default, aggressive, forward-thinking perspective that I'm the one who's setting the stage here. I'm a shliach. I'm raising my children. I'm sending a Jewish perspective. I'm no, I'm no longer able to be influenced by these outside forces because I'm the influencer. I'm the mashpia. I'm the one who's, get, who's shedding that light. I'm the one who's setting that stage. And in Lebanon at an ambush uh, a few months back, can't say the exact you know circumstances of the incident, but we were uh, fired upon by machine gun fire with just two other guys in the middle of the night. Um, obviously, our 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 um, our, our benefit, our our, um, uh, our strategic advantage over the enemy was that we mm -hmm. weren't seen, and so we were secret, so we were fine. The second we were discovered, that all disappears. And we must have been discovered some way or another, and we were fired upon. And I remember that original instinct of, well, it's time to be afraid. It's time to worry because you're three guys against who knows how many Lebanese army and, you know, Hezbollah members there are. I couldn't get a good picture of what it was. It was late at night. I put my night vision goggles on but couldn't see anything. Uh, before help arrived, before I get any cover fire, it would be, you know, you know, a good 10, 15 minutes. Um, and in that time, I said, I'm making the decision here. I'm expelling with this syringe. I'm a shliach. I'm a mashpia. Hmm. I'm a lamplighter who's shedding that light. I'm the one setting the stage here. And the stage I'm setting is we're good to go. We're ready to go. I checked the gear before we went to this mission. The gear is fine, ready to go. I checked the soldiers before we went to this mission. The soldiers are good to go. They're briefed. They're locked on. Like I say in Hebrew, they're neulim. They're, they're sealed. They're good to go. I've done the training. We've gone through this together. We know what to expect. We know how to fight. That's the stage I'm setting. The stage I'm setting is, hmm. in the name of God, 
we will we will fight and we will win and we will succeed and all the different fears and everything else i'm not open to be influenced by that because i'm right now the one who's i'm right now the one who's setting the volume and setting the tone i'm right now the one who's defining what the mood is and that's really what it was we were really uh, i'm proud of those two men uh, american fellows who also made aliyah happens to be very proud of them that was the stage that we set that we are taking this mission taking the bull by its horns like the rebbe said himself that that's what that's what keeps you secure that you're the one who's setting the stage here you're the one who's in charge of your life nobody else Wow, I'm in awe. So you're saying that we could just figure out in our own minds when we're in a situation, I'm just going to be the syringe. I'm not going to be afraid right now. I'm just going to let, I set the stage and I'm just not going to allow that fear in. I think the biggest proof is Does today's that generation. Well, well, I mean, today's day and age, you know, guys, my age, 20, 21, 25. Well, uh, that was, I mean, that that was the next thing I was going to get to. I mean, you, you are... If you don't mind me sharing how young you are, you're 21 years old. How do you have this wisdom? How do you have this maturity? How did you gain this outlook that you are just such a, you know, such certainty in what you're doing and such faith in what you're doing? Well, I think it's exactly that decision. Thank you, first of all. I mean, uh, definitely undeserved uh, compliments. And I think it's just a beard. I was saying earlier, the genetic Chabad beard <laughs> that comes in at the age of six <laughs> makes you seem older. <laughs> Um, I don't think yeah. so because it's the words that you're using, not the not the appearance. <laughs> but yeah, I think some it's of our viewers that... won't even be able to see you. Yes, go ahead. Oh, is that right? Well, I've got a big beard yeah. for this round anyway. Uh, <laughs> right. It's uh, I think it's definitely that that switch that we just described that I, in in today's day and age, and then, you know, I grew up among my friends, and I respect, and I admire, and I enjoy my friends' company. But a lot of today's day and age uh, generation can be so uh, pampered. And everything can be so at your fingertips that you find yourself self-pitying and you find yourself compromising for mediocrity just at the slightest inconvenience. In an age where you can have food delivered to your door, uh, everything made and set ready to go just for the right price, you can work from home, you can do anything you'd like at the most secure and comfortable and uh, uh, you know perfectly served um, setting imaginable. imaginable. And uh, it's so easy to slip into that mindset of... At the slightest provocation, at the slightest uh, difference of opinion, at the slightest um, discomfort, um, what's called in Hebrew, I'm a skin. I'm a victim. You know, I'm oppressed. Hmm. I'm, uh, I've got no, I've got no control over the situation because I'm just, you know, I'm at the mercies of the world. You know, I've just encountered these delays. I've encountered these difficulties. I've encountered these these diseases or these these ills and sicknesses, these these divisions that I've faced. I have to just lay back and take it and I'm, you know, I have to pity myself and I've got no charge of the situation. I think that the shift one has to make in his head is that I take responsibility, I take ownership, and I take, because of that, control of what happens in my life. If I'm not at fault, if I'm not at responsibility, I think fault is the wrong word. Nobody cares if fault and blame. Fault and blame have nothing to do, they don't help. Responsibility is what helps. Who's willing to take things and, and, and help repair them and move them forward? If I'm not at responsibility, if I'm not at the helm of what happens in my life, and I can't change it either because it's not, I'm not the one who's doing it. If I'm, you know, in an environment and I'm not getting along with anybody else and everybody seems to be, you know, finding me to be less than capable, I can take the approach that everybody's so mean, I'm being bullied, I'm being misused, I'm being abused. And those might all be valid. But if it's everybody else's fault, there's nothing you can do about the situation. If I take responsibility in myself and I say, I'm going to take, I'm going I'm to be the reason why this relationship's improved, this relationship improves. I'm not going to wait for the other side. I'm going to be the reason why the army is going to be more friendly to religious people when they have this and this religious observance that they want to keep and the army doesn't keep. I'm not going to let the religious ordinance authority of the army figure it out for them because I'm so miskin. I'm such a victim. 
I'm at their mercies mm-hmm. and they're abusing my rights. How many one is going to make a letter and send it to their commander and say, I want a meeting with the battalion commander. I want to represent the religious people in the army. I want to set the stage. Whose fault is it? It's definitely not my fault. I'm just one soldier. It's definitely the fault of the guys who overlooked it, fault of the guys who forgot about it, fault of the guys who don't respect the religion. But fault doesn't help anybody else. Fault, fault doesn't help anything about the problem. Fault just is a way of blaming and finding a way to feel good about yourself. If you want to make real change with the problems in your life, it's about taking responsibility for them, no matter whose fault they are. And um, again, going back to the Rebbe, because it's just an inescapable, inescapable part of who I am. You'll have to excuse me. But that was what the Rebbe really, really shined through each of his chassidim. That is that you're in these environments. You're in these shluchot. I mean, my father, you know, 20 years, Baruch Hashem, raising a beautiful Chabad house in Washington, D.C., unimaginable obstacles where he really had a full justification each time to say, I'm a victim here. I mean, the municipality is not letting me build my shul. What, what can I do about that? I mean, there's, there has been somebody who drove by the shul and painted on some swastikas and, you know, threw some marbles in there. There's nothing I can, I mean, I'm just, I'm a victim here. I, I'm, a, I'm oppressed. I have to settle down. There's nothing I can do about it. But my father and what the Rebbe's vision was and what I strive to do in my work is you're never a victim. This is your life. Hashem gave it to you as a gift. And he also gave it to you as a responsibility, that it's your responsibility to make the most of your potential. And anybody else who's getting in the way or any other challenges who are trying to overtake that, never an excuse. Maybe at blame, maybe at fault, but never, uh, never able to change who's in control. Incredible. So this, this proactive you know, idea of just taking charge of the situation, was this always part of your mindset? Was this always what you were? Did you have any failures that made you realize this or this is just how you always were well i think i learned it from my from my parents from my mother and father as i bless them um of that attitude of never letting yourself self-pity because it gets you nowhere um and yeah there's definitely been some there's some there's definitely been some obstacles on the way where in the army you ask yourself am i am i am i properly achieving my goals when i was enlisting the army in the first place it's definitely a leap to make from a Chabad background, from a guy in Yeshiva, to say, am I, am I supposed to be doing this? Am I doing the wrong thing? Am I just rebelling? Am I just a teenager who wants to go against the grain? Um, definitely a lot of moments of self-doubt that inevitably will come up and that will inevitably will, you know, still wait in the future. But I think as long as we, we, we hold tight to those the, the values of Yiddishkeit, the values of Judaism, which is that we are lamplighters in the world, we're here to be a light upon the nations, then really there's, there's no, there's, there's only clarity. There's no doubts left because my job is to be light upon the nations. My job is to make the most of my, maximize my potential, fulfill my mission in this earth, bring the redemption a little closer. That's all you need to know. That's the question. And that's the answer. So whatever I need to do to make that happen, that's my, that's my path. So if it's to go to the army for me, because you know, I'm built and cut out to do this, something I've always wanted to do, go for it, go for it and give your best in it and do a good job at it. But uh, yeah, definitely it, it resolves all doubt when you realize the ultimate mission. It's a great perspective, really a great perspective. Yes, I know you're in a real rush because it's almost Shabbat for you. But one last question: Can you um, can you tell us a little bit what your what's in store for your future? What are your thoughts about what what you plan? What are your plans? Uh, an exciting question. I'm getting out of the army in uh, less than a month. Going to be doing a army sponsored educational course to kind of take my foot off the gas a little bit, and uh, what they call it, do a little tactical vacation. Um, Obviously going to keep my combat shape up, combat shape up, but more importantly, to just have a couple months at home with my wife uh, and finally breathe a little bit in the house and not worry about getting called to the next Arab village or the next uh, emergency or terror attack. Um, in the future, I definitely I plan to stay in the same field. I'll be honest. Uh, this is what I love doing. This is what I connect doing in my soul. And I plan to have a uniform and a rifle um, till Mashiach comes, till the redemption comes. 
uh, for the foreseeable future. And so there's plenty of outside units in the, uh, beyond the IDF that work within the structure of the IDF that are very uh, professional. I think the vast majority of people in those units are married with kids. Definitely a much more broad-minded, professional, mature units uh, that specialize in special operations, exact, a little bit dangerous, but uh, daring and uh, effective missions wow. that are critical for, this, for the keeping the people safe here. Wow. Incredible. Yessie Blooming, thank you so much for joining us. Your perspective is so refreshing. It's so clear. You have such clarity and wisdom and maturity. It's it's almost unbelievable to be that I'm speaking to someone who's only 21 years of, of age um, and your dedication to the IDF and to protecting the Jewish people is so um, so beautiful. Just, I have no words for it. You should continue to do what you're doing and be safe, be strong. And, and thank you. Thank you for everything that you're doing for all of us all over the world. Thank Amen. you for what Amen. you're doing and for your service for the Jewish people. Thank you. Yeah. Two parts that especially stood out from, with, from my interview with Staff Sergeant Yossi Blooming that really impressed me was his attitude towards fear and his attitude towards victimhood. Um, towards fear, he says, we can just take control of the situation and be like that syringe that expels, that just doesn't allow it in. We can make that decision ourselves and we can decide, I've prepared for the situation, I'm ready for the situation, I'm not going to let fear enter my mind. And how he dealt with victimhood, the way he approached it was to say, it's not about responsibility, it's not about blame, but it's about taking responsibility. I'm in a situation now, how can I take responsibility for making it better? It's not about who I can blame for what I'm in, but how can I make it better? And I think those two insights are tremendous insights from a young 21-year-old Chabad Chassid who decided to join the U.S., the, the IDF when he was comfortable in the U.S., made Aliyah, and remains true to his the teachings of Hasidists in the IDF and leads his life as a true Hasid. So those are what really stood out for me from this interview. If you enjoyed this interview, um, please subscribe to more of Ordinary People with Extraordinary Stories. You can find us as well on Chabad.org on Chabad.org forward slash extraordinary. Please leave comments there and let us know your thoughts and feedback. We really love to hear from you. Thank you for joining.